Romans chapter 12. We're continuing this series looking at um, some doctrines for life, doctrines that uh, are key to understanding who we are, uh, particularly as uh, Christians. It's been a slightly dotty series with people kind of uh, away here and there. And this morning we're thinking about the topic of holiness. So we're going to read Romans 12 and from verse 1. Romans 12 verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Our Father, this is uh, your word uh, written uh, as your son wanted by the uh, power of your spirit. And so we pray now that you would open our eyes uh, to uh, see, to understand, uh, and to receive with joy uh, what you're saying to us. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself why you're here? Okay, why you're here? By which I don't mean why you're here this morning, but why you're here, not, not there. Okay, why, why are you on earth, not in heaven? Okay, particularly if you're, if you're a Christian, uh, you're someone who has put your trust in Christ, you've been forgiven. In that sense, your destiny is secure. Okay, there's nothing else to do. You're not half saved once you trust Christ, you're you're fully saved. There's no danger left. There's nothing more needed to achieve because Christ achieved it all on the cross. So so why does God not vacuum people straight off to heaven? Why is it that as soon as they trust Christ, they're not whisked home 
to safety. Uh, or to ask another question, which is really the same question, another way around. What are you up to at the moment? What are you up to this afternoon? What are you up to this week? What are your plans for the summer? Now, normally when we ask that question, our, our minds tend to go to projects, don't they? Well, I've got to take the kids to playgroup Monday morning. I've got lunch with a friend on, on Tuesday afternoon. We're swimming Wednesday evening, going to the cinema on Thursday. Got a project due in on Friday. That's what our mind go to, tasks we have to achieve. But there's something more important going on in your life this week than simply the list of things you're meant to be doing. The more important thing is in verse 2 of Romans 12. The more important thing going in your life is the transformation that God is seeking to achieve. The most important thing that is going on in your life at the moment is your transformation to be more like Christ. Now, there's lots of good projects to be doing. Work is good, parenting is good, hanging out with friends is good. There are lots of Christian projects to be doing. Okay, evangelizing the nations, praying for the world, building one another up in love. But, but behind all of them, and fundamental to them all, is God's project of transforming you. Or to use another Bible word, sanctifying you. To sanctify something means to make something holy. Uh, it, in, um, the Bible is written in Greek, and in, in Greek... If the word to, to sanctify, to make something holy, and the word holy are the same, you'd better see they're linked. Now, we don't have a word in English to, to holify something, so it's, it's sometimes lost in, in English translations. But, but essentially, that's what God is up to in this transformation project of verse 2, to make you more holy. And that, that's what we're thinking about this morning. I'm not going to preach all the way through Romans 12. We're thinking about these topics. And the the, the topic this morning is that sanctification, that making holy of God's people. Now, I, I would say straight away that sometimes when you read the Bible and you, you come across Paul saying something like, you have been sanctified, sometimes Paul is talking about something that has already happened to you. So this, whole, this whole project of holiness is described in two ways. Sometimes Christians are, are described as those who are already holy. And sometimes they're described as those who need to be made holy. That this holiness project is both something that's already happened and something that's ongoing. I want to talk about the ongoing this morning. But, but to give a bit of an illustration, uh, to, to maybe get our mindsets right. You might know that, that in the days of the Old Testament, um, God's people met in a special place. Children, do you know where that special place was when, when people wanted to come before God and meet him, where God lived on earth? Yabs? Yeah, it was a tent, yeah, Isaac? Tabernacle, that's right, a tent, a tabernacle, a temple uh, later on. A special place, and that was a holy place. And in this great tent, this great tabernacle as it was called, were various bits of equipment. There was a table, there was a, a, a candlestick, uh, there was a basin for washing. And when all those things were made and brought into the temple, they were declared to be holy. That's because they were now for God's use above all. Now, when they were being made in the workshop, they were just a candlestick. Might have looked like any other candlestick. But when they were brought into the tabernacle, into God's house, they became holy, set aside for his use. 
But alongside the furniture of the tabernacle were people called priests, children, who worked in the tabernacle. And, and when they turned 30, they belonged to a particular family, they would become priests. And on their 30th birthday, they would dress in special robes that have oil poured on their head. And from that day onwards, they were treated as holy people. They alone were allowed into the, the inner bit of the tent. But of course, the first day they went to work, they wouldn't know what to do. They'd have to learn what it meant to serve God in the tabernacle. They'd already been declared holy. They had the right robes on. They had the oil on their head. But they still needed to learn what it meant to be priests in the tabernacle. They had to learn what sacrifices to do and when to do them. When to light the candlestick, when to put the bread before God. They had the status of being holy, but they had to learn how to live out that status. Now, that's what's going on with all Christians in the New Testament. There are no more priests. You have ministers or elders, but you don't have priests anymore. But the New Testament says we're all holy. We're all holy because we've all been clothed in Christ's righteousness. We all wear those robes that say we are allowed into God's presence. We're all holy because we've been anointed, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we all serve God. We'll see that a little bit later in Romans 12. And so in that sense, we are already counted as holy ones. The place you see that most often in the New Testament, I think, is at the beginning of many of the letters. Often Paul will write to the saints in Rome or the saints in Corinth. Now, saints aren't special uh, holy people. They're not a distinct group from the rest of Christians. Saints is another word that underneath just means holy ones. Again, in Greek, it's the same stem as all the other words. So when you see these letters written to the saints in Rome, it just means the Christians in Rome, those who God has said, you are my holy people, you are now set aside for my service. So in one sense, if you're a Christian, you're holy, job done. But there's a different sense of holiness, the sense of growing to, to live out the calling, the status that God has given, that Paul focuses on in Romans 12. Just two things, very simply this morning, uh, for this transformation. The first thing we need to do is consider what God has done. Consider what God has done. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, from Romans 12 onwards, Paul is going to tell the Romans, tell Christians, all sorts of ways that they're to live out their Christian life. He's going to give them endless commands. You might have heard, as, as I read, that the vast majority of the reading was commands. Uh, we're told to love one another, to hate what is evil, but to cling to what is good, to outdo one another in showing honour, to not be slothful, to rejoice, to be patient, to contribute to the needs, to show hospitality. It's a big list of commands. And actually, as Romans 12 onwards... It goes right through to the, to the end of the book, you'll find loads and loads and loads of commands. But if we were to have read the first half of the book of Romans, in fact, it's more than half, it's about two-thirds, chapters 1 to 11, we would have found Paul only seven times giving a command. There are 315 verses in Romans 1 to 11, and in only seven of them are there any commands. For the vast majority of Romans 1 through 11, Paul has been explaining not what Christians ought to do, but what God has done for them. 
And it's for that reason that he begins Romans 12 with that word, therefore. He doesn't want to issue any commands. He doesn't want to tell us how to live until we've understood what God has done for us first. It's only when we've understood what God has done that Paul can say, therefore, in response to that, this is how you should live. That's almost always the pattern in in Paul's letters, uh, because it's the pattern of the gospel. So Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are all about what God has done. Ephesians 4, the first verse of the second half of the letter, Paul says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you received. Now you've understood what God has done for you, this is how you should live. The same in Colossians. Two and a bit chapters of explaining what God has done. And then Paul says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, and on he goes. The point is, you can't live a holy life. You can't obey the commands of God until first we've understood what God has done for us. Grace comes before gratitude. God's grace, then our gratitude in response. The comfort of the gospel comes before the commands of the Christian life. Or to put it most simply, we have to understand what God has done before we understand what we do in response. Uh, So far in, in Romans, Paul has already said that there are two things God has done for you. That's 11 chapters, there's a lot of detail we're not going to touch this morning. But God has done two things for you, if you're a Christian. Uh, The first thing is what what God has done for you. Just flick back a few chapters to Romans 3. It's a whistle-stop tour. Romans 3, what has God, God done for you? Well, he's justified you. That is, he's declared that you are right in his sight. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Romans 3 and verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 4, verse 25, next chapter. Romans 4, 25, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's that justified word again. Children, I don't know if you can remember back, well, it's probably about four weeks now, maybe five, when we talked about justification. To be justified means that God has not just forgiven our sins. Imagine we were here with that sort of neutral, not done anything good or bad. We sin. It's not just we're forgiven, but also that God says, no, it's as if you lived Christ's life. God looks at us and says, look, the, the verdict on you is that you are a righteous person in my sight. He knows we sin. He knows we fall short. But because Jesus took our sin and then gave us his life's record, we can be declared righteous. Not just not guilty, but right, perfect in God's sight. And that's why chapter 5 begins, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8 begins, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 1 through 11 has been telling us time and time again what God has done. We haven't contributed anything to this. It's a gift. That's why it's grace. And it's finished. It's certain. And it's really important we understand that before we try to grow in holiness. We we need to understand that our position before God is secure and doesn't rest on our performance. If we think it's our holiness, our sanctification, that somehow 
earns our place in God's presence, we're either going to end up really proud, look at me, I've done really well, I'm a really holy person, I'm like the Pharisee praying in the temple, I thank you God, like I'm, I'm not like those other men. Or, which is probably more likely for most of us, we're going to get crushed because we know we're not holy. We look at our actual lives, we look at our hearts, we look at our mental lives, and we realise we are far from the people God called us to be. And so the guilt creeps in, and we start to doubt whether God really loves us, whether we're really forgiven, whether we'll really end up in heaven, because we see the mess of our own lives. That's why Paul is so keen to say, first of all, you need to understand that your status before God is finished settled, finalised. You are justified. It's done. Remember what God has done for you and what God has done in you. That's the second thing that Romans 1 to 11 deals with. Not just what God has done for you on the outside, but what God has done in you. Turn on a page to Romans 6. Might be the same page. Romans 6. And, And look what God has done in Christians. Romans 6 and verse 6. We know that our old self, the old you, if you like, was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, this is what is done in you, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Or verse 22 of chapter 6. Now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. See, Paul says, look, it's, it's not just that this legal exchange happened where you gave your sin to Jesus and he gave you his righteousness. That did happen, but also because you were joined to Jesus, something happened in you when you became a Christian. What happened in you was that the, the power of sin was killed off. Sin is no longer your master if you're a Christian. That feels like it still is your master sometimes, doesn't it? There are particular sins that entangle us and we feel we'll never get free of. But Paul says, no, it has happened. Whatever you feel like, the the dominance of sin is gone. If you imagine your heart as a little kingdom, before we were Christians, sin reigned. The crown was on sin's head. But when you became a Christian, Christ knocked the crown off sin's head and conquered him. And Christ now sits as king in your heart. That's why, extraordinarily, we can be described as those who are slaves of God in verse 22. Do you feel like you're a slave to God? You get up in the morning, you think, well, you know, I'd almost like to sin, but I just can't. I'm just a slave to God. I can't help but do righteousness. You know, I'm just, can't help being holy. It doesn't feel like that, does it? But, But that is true of you. That's why one of Paul's only commands in the first 11 chapters of Romans is found in verse 11 of chapter 6. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Just recognize this. The power of sin has been broken in your life because Christ conquered it on the cross and his power, if you like, flows to you. His resurrection life flows to you. As I've said already, it doesn't always feel like this. Imagine in, um, uh, take yourself back to the, the days when slavery okay, was still in place. And imagine someone who was a slave, uh, a slave to their master. Uh, that was Monday morning. On Tuesday, Parliament declared no more slavery. Okay, slavery has ended. And so the, the proclamation comes around 
Uh, and you hear the news, and your master has to say to you, no, you are now free. You no longer are my slave. So you head off uh, into town to live a free life. The next day, you're walking down the street, and you see your old master. And your master, who doesn't like the idea that you're now free, shouts to you and says, come over here, carry my shopping, go fetch my food. Your first response is to obey, to go back and do what your old master told you to do, because you spent your whole life under his authority, under his power. And so you start picking up his bags and carrying his shopping, you start doing his work for him. What needs to happen? You don't need to be set free again, do you? You don't need to be set free again. What you need is to remember that you already are free. That's a picture that Paul's painting in Romans 6. And that's why his command in verse 11 is, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. He's not saying kill off sin. He's not saying try and free yourself from the power of sin. He's saying you are free from it. Remember it. Most of the battle for holiness, most of the battle for growth in Christ-likeness is fought in remembering both what God has done for us externally, justified us, adopted us as his children, that means our status is secure, and then remembering, considering that the power of sin is conquered in our hearts. We are now able to do what God wants. So consider what God has done. But then secondly, cooperate with what God is doing. Back to Romans 12, our our main passage, those first couple of verses. Romans 12. Consider what God has done, but also cooperate with what God is doing. See the command that finally comes, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. There's the command. Be transformed. Now, there's something slightly strange about the command, isn't there? The strange thing about the command is, it's a command to have something done to you. It doesn't say transform yourselves, but be transformed. If you like your grammar and you learnt grammar at school, it's a passive command. Something that happens to you, not something you do. Be transformed. How do you obey a passive command? How do you obey a command that relies on something else, someone else doing something? It's a bit like a father bringing his children in and say, saying, I want you to be educated in Latin. Okay? I want you to be educated in Latin. But when you hear that kind of command, that passive command, it tells you two things. It does tell you you need to do something, but, but also it tells you that the, the, the education is going to come from outside. Okay? If you're going to be, be educated in Latin, if you're going to be taught Latin... You know that someone else is going to have to be doing most of the work, even if there's something for you to cooperate with. Well, that's the same with this transformation. This be transformed. The the fact that it's passive, be transformed, tells us that ultimately this is God's work again. It's God's activity primarily that's going on when you're made more holy. That the power comes from outside. And here it comes through, well, through, do you see? The renewal of your mind, verse 2. It comes through the word of God, in other words. The primary way Christians are transformed, the primary tool, if you like, that the Holy Spirit uses, is the word of God. And he he transforms your mind. That is the the route into the Christian's soul or spirit. God gets you through your ears or your eyes as you read God's word. 
and your brain, as your brain, your mind is transformed, your thinking is changed, therefore you live a holy life. That's why the, the, the sermon, the Bible, is at the centre of everything we do at church, and always has been at the centre of, of all healthy churches. There is no way of getting sanctified, getting made holy, getting made Christ-like, that bypasses the Bible, or bypasses the mind. Sometimes you hear, you know, you go to, I'm sure this doesn't happen in Leeds, but you go to other universities and, and go to the Christian unions, and you hear them all talk about their churches, and one person will say, well, that church is more of a kind of mind church, they like teaching. The other one's more of a sort of spirit church, then there's the other one that's more, it's just more emotional, more sort of, more sp- it doesn't work like that. The only way you can be transformed, the only way you can live a life of, verse one, spiritual worship is through the transformation of your mind. God transforms us through his word. But we do cooperate. We are active. This holiness project, this transformation project that's going on in our lives does require our cooperation in a way that being justified didn't or being adopted didn't or being born again didn't. Sanctification is something we are meant to work at. Uh, You see in verse 1 that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a response needed. We're we're meant to say to God, look, I want to live a life of holiness. I want to lay down my life on your altar, as it were, and you to transform me to be the person I was created to be. The power comes from God, but, but we're meant to respond and say, Lord, that's what I want to do. Just flick on a book. I'm sorry for dotting around. That's what happens when you speak about doctrines. Normally we'll preach through books of the Bible, but occasionally these topics I think are useful to address. Just flick on a couple of books to the book of Philippians. Philippians and chapter 2. It's on page 981 of the church Bibles. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Just underneath where it says lights in the world. Philippians 2, verse 12. Just as I read these two verses, see if you can see God at work and our cooperation. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation. It doesn't mean work out getting saved. It means live out your salvation. The, the gift of salvation you've been given, work at it. Okay? Get more and more holy. Verse 12, for it is God who works in you. Because God is at work, cooperate with him. Or or to to use another picture, last jump, I promise. Galatians, just back a book, back two books. Galatians 5 and verse 25. Paul has talked about the spirit at work in our hands. This is page 975, Galatians 5 verse 25. If we live by the spirit, let us also Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in your life, if you're a Christian. He's trying to make you more and more like Christ, so walk with him. In that sense, imagine your life's like a, like a boat, okay, on a river. And, and the Holy Spirit is carrying you towards holiness. Okay, that's where you're going. You're going down river. The river will take the boat downstream. But you're going to go quicker if you row in line 
with the tide. You row in line with the river. You'll go faster. You'll make more progress. At times as Christians, we stop rowing. We stop bothering about holiness and we just drift. Now, ultimately, the Holy Spirit will win. Okay? He's more powerful than your sin. You will arrive safely in heaven and be transformed. But it's going to be a slower journey, a harder journey. Sometimes we even rebel and row upstream against the, the flow, against the push. Makes things even harder. Again, the Holy Spirit will win. But that kind of disobedience is only going to impede us. So Paul says, keep in step with him. He is pushing you in that direction. Don't kick back against him. In that sense, you can be more or less holy. Have you ever, have you ever um, heard that illustration people sometimes give? Um, which day does, is God more pleased with you? Okay, Monday, you wake up, um, you make your wife a cup of coffee, you feed the kids breakfast, you get their packed lunch ready for school, you take them to school, you go to work, on the bus on the way in, you explain the gospel to someone, uh, you work hard all day, you pray during your lunchtime, you go home, lead small group beautifully, and then go to sleep. But the next day you get up, you're furious, you kick the cat, slam a piece of cold toast in front of the kids, you're late for work, you swear at the bus driver, you're lazy all day, you go home in a huff and collapse into bed. Which day is more pleased with God, which day is God more pleased with you? What's the answer to that question? Okay, I'm not going to ask you, but what's the answer to that question? I've heard that many times in sermons asked. The answer is, it's a bad question. <laughs> Depends what you mean. If you ask which day am I more justified, which day am I more adopted, which day um, am I more safe in God's care, the answer is neither, both the same. You're, you're as saved on Monday as Tuesday. Okay? Whether you kick the cat or stroke the cat, you're equally saved. It makes no difference whatsoever. Your status is secure. But of course, it is more pleasing to God if you give your life in service to other people rather than in aggression to other people. It's more pleasing to God if you obey him rather than disobey him. So in terms of your holiness or your sanctification, well, it's the, the day when you obeyed. That's more pleasing to God. doesn't mean you're more saved or less saved. but He's just pleased. Think of it like um, parents with children. If you've got children, you will love them in one sense unconditionally. If your children disobey you, you don't throw them out of the family. But of course you're more pleased. It just brings more pleasure to your heart when they care for their brothers and sisters rather than fight and squabble, when they obey rather than disobey. Sanctification is an ongoing project. It won't finish until we die, but it's an ongoing growth project. So very simply, let me, let me ask you as, you as we come to an end, are you in that battle? Okay. Are you working for this transformation? Are you trying to keep in step with the Spirit? It is going to be difficult. Remember Romans 12? Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifices end up on altars. Sacrifices end up dead. Now Paul, to make sure we don't misunderstand, says living sacrifices. Okay? He's not looking for you know, heroics where we throw ourselves off cliffs or whatever. But it is going to be difficult. Think of Jesus' words, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's what a life of discipleship looks like. Now, there's opposition from the world, there's opposition from the devil, but ultimately there's opposition from our own hearts. Sin remains. You've got Galatians 5 open. Just look at the description of the Christian life in chapter 5, and verse 17. Paul talks about a kind of tug of war going on in our hearts. Verse 17. Well, let's go from 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul says that even as a Christian, even though you're born again, even though the Holy Spirit lives in you, the old you, that's what he means by the flesh, your old sinful nature. It doesn't just mean your body, your physical body. It means your old sinful nature still tries to tug you back, to make you disobey. And that's why the, the Christian life does feel like a tug of war at times. The Holy Spirit is pushing you one way, but the sin that remains in us pulls us back. Now, it's worth saying that even feeling that tension, that battle, is an encouragement. When you feel gutted because you've failed, when you've given into sin again for the thousandth time, there's something encouragement in that feeling of being gutted. Because if, if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work, you wouldn't care about sin. So there's encouragement even in the, if you like, the, the, the failures that we experience. It shows that a war is going on. Okay, dead fish just float downstream. Live fish are the ones that are actually battling. But we, we need to know that, that, that it's not just going to be plain sailing all the time. John Newton, who wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace, compared growing in holiness to a man writing a letter. Children, imagine a, a man sitting down to write a letter, okay, with his best pen. And he sits down, and he wants to write everything that he wants to do to live a holy life. So imagine a Christian writing what he wants to do. So he writes down, I want to, I want to pray every day. Uh, I want to love uh, my brothers and sisters. I want to give my money generously and not be selfish. I want to control my temper. But as he's writing, it's like his sinful nature and the devil are at his elbow. And as he tries to write, they keep knocking his pen. And so instead of being nice, neat, smooth, perfect, that the writing becomes scrawly and messy. And Newton says, that's what our lives are like. We have these intentions. I want to live a godly life. But the devil, it's a topic for another day, and our own sinful nature keep nudging our elbows, keep putting us off track. It's important we realise that. If we don't realise sin remains in us, then we're going to get hugely downhearted when we fail. Okay, if we think Paul is saying you can live a perfect life, we've badly misunderstood him. We will fall. Sin remains until we die or Christ returns. But that doesn't mean we give up. So I don't need to be surprised when I still sin. I don't need to be surprised when my marriage isn't perfect or my kids are continually disobedient. It doesn't mean something's gone hugely wrong. Sin remains. But I keep fighting. I don't become like the world. Verse 2, don't be transformed to this world. I keep trying to be countercultural in that sense. And what I do is bring all my life, my, my body as Paul calls it, to be a living sacrifice to God, asking him to change the way my mind works, the things my eyes look at, the, the words that come from my mouth, the things my heart treasures, and change them to be more and more like Christ. Uh, if you've seen the film Beauty and the Beast... Uh, you'll know that that film is a, a, a story of transformation. We know the story, the fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast. And the guy who illust illustrated it for Disney, the guy who was one of the chief, well, illustrators, chief artists on the film, had pinned over his computer a verse from the Bible. It was actually, it wasn't Romans 12, it was 2 Corinthians 5, 17, but it's a similar message. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And he had that pinned over his screen because he understood that what he was drawing was a drawing of, a, a, a drawing a story of transformation where the beast is transformed from someone who begins the film as this selfish, 
conceited man, turned into a beast, the beastliness of sin, and is transformed slowly over the course of the film by the, the beauty and the character of Belle until right at the end, the final transformation is made. And he understood that was a picture of the Christian life. He explained this at a, a sort of conference before the film was released. Uh, yes, we are almost made beast-like by sin, but Christ in his beauty comes and slowly is transforming us until that last day, that great wedding day, uh, where the bride, the church, meets Christ in Revelation and will be transformed fully and finally. That is, that is why Christ died. Yes, to forgive you, but also to transform you into being the, the beautifully holy people you were made to be. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That is what God is doing in your life. That is the great project you're to set your mind to until you die or he calls you home. Are you in the battle? Because he is fighting for you. Put your hand to the plough and join him at work. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that our salvation doesn't rest in our own hands, but is safe on high with Christ. We thank you that he's paid for every sin, atoned for all our guilt. Thank you that we're clothed in his righteousness. And we praise you too that you've given us your spirit to unite us to Jesus and that sin's power is therefore no longer reigning, no longer in charge in our hearts. We pray you'd make us a church of people who give our bodies to you in sacrificial living and make us desire holiness, work for it, seek it. Uh, might we be people who are willing to pay any cost in order to become just a little bit more like Christ our Lord. And Father, we pray therefore that we be those who keep in step with the Spirit. Transform us, we pray, for the glory of Jesus in his church. Amen.